Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and of course, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Now, last week was our season premiere talking to Olympian Kara Goucher about her battle for freedom, along with the writer of her book, The Longest Race, Mary Pallon. Now, if you didn't listen to that episode, I'm going to encourage you to go do that right now because it really sets the stage for part two. I got in the middle of this interview and I hadn't planned on a double episode, but it was just... I was mesmerized by this conversation and it really does hit on the themes of the season, crush it without getting crushed, but also on the power of FOMO and how one can fight back against that when it manipulates us to do things we don't want to do. So that's what we're going to do. I'm just going to jump right in. Not even a small ask this week. My small ask is just enjoy a break. So let's do it. Let's jump in right now with part two. FOMO. All right, everybody, we are back with Kara Goucher and Mary Pilon. As you recall, last week, we started telling the story, Kara started sharing her story of her, her career in elite distance running and her experience as part of the Nike Oregon Project, which was like this sort of velvet rope, very high-end, very elite running program. And inside of that program, she suffered abuse by her coach, Alberto Salazar. So we talked about that. We're going to pick it up. And we talked with Mary, who co-wrote the book with Kara and is a has covered this story and also covered the story of Larry Nasser and U.S. and gymnastics. So we talked a lot about the psychology. We talked a lot about uh, Kara's experience. But what I want to do this week is pick up where we left off. And, you know, as I read the book, you know, the thing that ugh, like really stuck with me and where I kind of was invested emotionally in a lot of ways was that, you know, it looks so good from the outside. And this happens all the time. Like the Instagram looks so good. And then you, but you know that behind the scenes, like nothing's that good, right? And, but like, this is the thing. You had kids all over the world, all over the country. You had people, runners who look at you and they could not imagine, right? What you're dealing with. 
and you are having success, it's not like you're not succeeding, even though you're in this messed up place where you're being treated completely inappropriate. You're making the podiums at the, you know, at the New York Marathon, the Boston Marathon, you're in the Olympics. So like, it's a crazy place to be. And I just want to start there. Like, talk about, please, that dichotomy and how it feels when like on the outside, it's like you are, you're killing it, but yet you're paying this huge price that nobody knows about. Well, I think the Instagram comparison is spot on. Um, but you have to remember, I still felt lucky to be there. Like I, even though everyone's talking about my body openly making jokes about me, um, I'm seeing stuff that's very uncomfortable. I'm like, Hey, just what you said, I am succeeding. And this is what, I mean, I believe that that's what it took like to be successful in sport as a female, you just had to grin and bear some stuff that was yucky. That's just, that's just what it takes. That's just the environment that you're in. And so I, I was like, I, I still felt like I was lucky to be here, but, but a lot of the joy in the process, it wasn't there anymore. I was not, I was not loving it the way I did when I was in college or high school or when I first started there, it had really shifted to be like a job. And yeah, I was still chasing my dreams, but there, it wasn't as joyful as it had once been. It was kind of like, I was just going through the motions and hoping I would do something big enough to make Alberto and the team happy instead of like living in the moment and being present and, you know, feeling the things that I was accomplishing because everything I accomplished to the outside, people thought I was doing amazing, but to my team, everything was a disappointment. I had always let them down in some way, shape or form. So it was just, it was just weird, right? Like I just felt like that's what you have to do to have success. You just have to put up with the lumps and it is hard and it is uncomfortable, but yeah, no, nobody knew what was going on behind closed doors because I didn't even really realize at that point that it was like wildly inappropriate. You know, it occurs to me, I, I have a thesis and I love your thoughts on it, Kara, because as I'm listening to you, like I keep thinking of the word resilient, but it's like a resiliency that's not serving you, unfortunately. Uh, it's serving you in, in on the race. It's not serving you in, 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 in inside of all the stuff that you're dealing with. But you're like, you're, when you're a long distance runner, like one of the things that that like people I know who are really good runners, like the one thing that they that they have that a lot of people don't is like they just their tolerance for pain is like really high. They just like it's I don't even know how they do it, but they do it. And so like I'm curious, have you thought about like because you had built up this physical resilience and this tolerance for pain, this mental toughness, like did somehow that actually work against you and that you just sort of were able to like persevere where others would not? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I lost my father at a really young age. And I think very early on, I learned how to like push away pain, push away things that are going to make me uncomfortable or make other people uncomfortable. Right. So if I'd say, well, my dad died when I was little and people would say, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I'd be like, you don't need to be sorry. You didn't have anything to do with it, you know, instead of like feeling that they were truly empathetic. Right. So I think that I learned from a young age to put things aside and then as an athlete, you you have to do that. You have to embrace the pain. You have to just say, you know what? This is going to hurt for two hours today while I'm training. It's going to be uncomfortable. And I just have to accept it. And I can't think about it. I just have to accept it. And even when you're racing, like we were talking about the marathon, it's a two and a half hour endeavor. At 30 minutes, you can't be thinking about, oh, I can't wait till I finish. I hope it goes like that. You have to be in the moment. And so I learned at a pretty young age to compartmentalize. And I do think that as an athlete, it did help me because I was able to put aside things that could potentially 
hurt my performance, but in the end, it didn't serve me as a human being because I never allowed myself to feel things or to really examine things. Everything was always put in a box and pushed aside. If it wasn't getting me to win a race, then I couldn't have it in my life. You know, as, as I think about this story, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but Mary, I want to go back to this. Like, so there is like one criminal here, which is Alberto. Uh, it's who did, you know, really bad things and individuals do bad things all the time. Companies on the other hand, somehow we expect more companies, right? Nike. It's like when I think of Nike, shoe dog, everybody loves shoe dog, right? We all love Phil Knight. Everybody loves shoe dog. I don't know why. I didn't read shoe dog, but they love it. Uh, you know, I'm wearing Nikes right now. Like when I think of Nike, I'm like, you know, it makes me feel all the warm feelings, right? But Nike is an accomplice in this story. And I want, I want to hear, Mary, from your perspective, because this is a business story too. Like, what, and, and it's just, and again, it's like mind blowing. Like, what did Nike do? How did they contribute to this situation? Sure. So I, I did read Shoe Dog and I love it. I think J.R. Moringer, who is the ghostwriter that he's a genius, right? Everybody um, loves Shoe Dog. <laughs> and I think because I kind of grew up in Nike's backyard, I mean, I was literally born uh, a five minute walk from Hayward Field. Um, wow. Eugene, Nike has a really complicated relationship with Eugene, right? And in my childhood, you know, I watched the Oregon Ducks go from a crappy football team that my parents used to take me to because it was empty. You know, like hey, Autzen Stadium was where you ran, let your kids run around to a powerhouse. I mean, those facilities rival NFL facilities that I've been to. Um, it's an institution, right? It's a big company. And I think their marketing and branding is brilliant, right? They've ca- You can go anywhere in the world and see a swoosh. And the company, the irony to me of the story, and there's a lot of it, is it's named after the female goddess of victory. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, women are so underrepresented at the highest levels of that company. And Kara's story, um, you know, there were big sequences that I thought were really important, like when she was pregnant and they suspended her pay, but were very happy to trod her around as this, you know, feminist symbol of motherhood and athleticism. But when it came to literally paying her, literally valuing her, even as she was moving merchandise, they were no, you know, they actively were punishing her. Allison Felix, other runners too, who are you know, perform doing things that they're, they're blazing the trail. That's supposed to be the brand. Um, and I think in terms of how Alberto, um, understood that, you know, something I've thought about a lot is that I've never interviewed Phil Knight. Um, but I do think Oregon track in the seventies, kind of that running heyday is his rosebud. I think that is the DNA of the company. That is how the company started. Mm. You know, Steve Prefontaine, um, who, uh, I spent a lot of time reporting on his death and legacy, that era of running history, I think, is really important. And that is how Alberto was able to create, you know, you follow the money, right? Like, if we didn't have money, none of the story would be happening. Money was the resources. Money was the glitz. And Alberto was a direct link because he was a huge star in his time. He And he was known for being this really tough, rugged runner. And, you know, that's that speaks to Phil Knight. As much as we love Air and as much as, 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 much as we love the Jordan story, running as like, that's the rosebud here. And I think that if this was another sport, I don't know if this all would have gone down the same way. I think there is something about what Alberto was pitching to the company that really spoke to Nike and its ethos. And, um, you know, it, it removed a lot of chains of power too, but this isn't unique to just Nike. I think sports in general has a really long way to go. You know, sports journalism, my industry is 85% men. I don't understand that. I think that's crazy. 
Um, wow. You know, so I think there's a lot of institutional headwind that um, makes these stories, sadly, not too surprising to me because it's it's a big it's a big place, and their goal is to move merchandise. It's not a nonprofit. It's not to make you feel good. And I think that tension, um, which Kara's story, I think, very much lives in, um, is really interesting. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now, that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing, too, is like as I as I was reading this is like, you know, the, the the sheer number of dollars that they're putting out to athletes, like it's not like they're giving millions and millions. You're still like amateur athletes. But when your job is to be fully focused on training and this is allows you to do that and live reasonably comfortably and not have to be, you know, eating like ramen, which you can't do if you're a long distance runner because it's too much sodium. Uh it, 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 you can understand you have a scarcity mindset. Like I got to keep this money coming in or I'm going to give up. I have to do my dream and then I'll never make the podium. Like how I'm Kara, like, how did you think? I imagine that, that, that had to be part of your calculus. Oh, totally. And that's one of the reasons why people always say, why don't, why don't track and field athletes unionize yeah. and fight for more? But I think it is because there's only, there's one pie and you're just so desperate to get one little slice of it. And now I'm like, I have a slice and I have like a slice and a half. I have a good slice right now. Like, I don't want to rock the boat. I maybe when I, you know, I, I can't tell you how many track and field athletes say, well, maybe when I'm done, you know, I'll be willing to work for the next generation. And I get it because you don't want to give up what you have. You earn that. You work so hard to have that. And it everything is compounded. Like, that's how you make your living. But also that's how you get into races. If you can't get into races or track meets, then you're over mm. anyway. So nobody wants to rock the boat or say anything. Everyone just wants to be good, be grateful for what you have. You're being given an opportunity. Don't mess it up. So Kara, you make this decision that enough is enough and you decide to take action. What, you know, it's you were taking on these two powerful forces, which was your coach and a major company. And you were stepping up, and this is the courage part of the story. Like, what was that like? How did you? I mean, it's so. It sounds so intense from the outside. How did you work up the strength to do that? And what was the action that you took? You know, the first action was just leaving the Oregon project. That was the first action. Just being able to say, "I this is. I don't deserve to be treated like this." And you know, I remember when I left. My agent at the time was like, where are you going to go? Like, you're already at the best place, you know? And it was like, I have to leave. If I have to stay here, then I'm going to quit running. Like, I can't do this. So that was like the first action was just removing myself from that situation. And then um, a couple of years later, I went to the United States Anti-Doping Agency. 
a lot of that was my husband. You know, he was so like, we need to do something. We need to say something. And again, like I said earlier, I was like, I don't want to rock the boat right now. I still have another Olympic Games in me. I don't want to do anything that jeopardizes that, you know. But he was really um, supportive of like, you can make a difference. We can make a difference. And so going to USADA was the first step. And then eventually working with Safe Sport, although I never wanted to go to Safe Sport. This isn't like a slam on Safe Sport, but I never wanted to do anything with Safe Sport. Uh, but I think it was once you make the decision, like, I'm going to do what's right, you just follow it. Even though it was awful, I got held out of races. I was, you know, ripped apart online. Some like very famous uh, writers would write about me who have never even met me and would help talk about me. And so it was, it was not good. But the thing is, once you decide, then you just, you can't stop. Like even when a day would be really bad, I'd be crying. I'd be like, I can't do this anymore. I'd wake up the next day and be like, I don't have a choice. I have to finish it now. Yeah. When you burn down the house, like, and you burn down institutions, which is in a sense what you did in a, you know, in a, for a very reasonable reason, not cause you're an arsonist, but, uh, I have to think <laughs> there's a lot of people who have set either they're either they're oblivious or they're in power, positions of power so they don't have to deal with that stuff or they've said I'm going to deal with this stuff. I'm like why can't she put up with these? I have to do it too, but you know, and so I have to imagine like what was the reception that you got from people and did it surprise you? Yeah, I was surprised by it. Um, I'm like a people pleaser. I'm like Minnesota nice. I grew up in Minnesota. So to be attacked online just so openly was shocking to me. It was really 50-50 at first because like half the people believed me and half the people were like, she's lying. She's just jealous. She's bitter. Why is she trying to take down one of the all-time greats and the, you know, our greatest funding in our sport? Why is she trying to ruin it for everybody else? And then there were people that were like, Oh my gosh, I wanted to say that. Thank you. But also in that 50% that supported me, not very many of them supported me publicly, right? It would be like a text message or if I saw them or a letter, but you know, publicly they didn't want to say anything because they didn't want to lose everything they had worked for. And I, I do understand that. Um, I guess I just hadn't thought fully about the consequences. My husband and I went public in 2015 with what we saw there on the doping side, not the harassment or abuse side so much. And I didn't want to do it. I was like, I still am trying to make another Olympic team. I can't deal with this. And so he was like, well, I'll do it and I'll speak for us. And so he did. But then I started to feel like, well, that's stupid. Like people are going to ask me about this. So I just need to do it too. So I came back and I, they came back and I spoke to them as well. And I, I guess I, I knew there would be some backlash, but I hadn't really considered that there were big time races that wouldn't welcome me, that there were people who would never talk to me anymore, that that appearance fees would go down. I hadn't considered all of that. And I think that really caught me off guard because I felt like I'm just telling the truth. Why am I being punished when I'm just telling the truth? Yeah, I can imagine as a Mainer, a cold weather person too, who is a people pleaser, that is, you know, you've done the right thing. And we always think that there's like the hero's journey and the person that does the right thing ends up with all the accolades, but there's a lot of costs. And that's why it's so hard for people to stand up and have courage. Mary, talk about the accountability in this story. Like what, what happened? Like what, what has been the, the impact? Great question. Uh, well, Kara's story, when I was working on this with her, it was kind of unique because a lot of it was still unfolding. 
Um, we didn't know how the safe sport cases were going to end. Um, and, you know, that changes obviously the end of the book. And Nike spent millions of dollars going against Kara, period. End of sentence. So whatever marketing slogans, I actually get a lot of targeted ads now, ironically, about them backing women. That is not what happened in her case. Millions with a, with a capital M. Um, and so the accountability piece, I think, you know, yes, safe sport, I think her case was probably the biggest test of safe sport, which is relatively new. Um, so there was accountability there, but as Kara has pointed out, you know, he could still coach at a high school. He could still privately coach could very well be, we don't really know, um, you know, what the enforcement mechanisms are there. It's a little unclear. Um, Mary Kane, who was a runner who trained at the Oregon Project after Kara left, uh, she has a, I believe it's a civil case pending. So, you know, if you want to go the legal route and you want to get a lawyer and find one who either you can afford or will take your case on contingency, that's a path. But I think there's a long way to go. Um, when the book came out, we both started getting really interesting messages from people about like, I'm not going to buy Nikes anymore. I'm not going to buy the apparel. I'm not going to, you know, that brand means something different to me. And I think that's something I would remind everybody is like you as a consumer, you know, you can vote with your dollars. And now there's a, a ton of, um, you know, really interesting companies out there. It's not like they're the only shop in town for, for gear. So I think that that's something that, you know, we the people are the board of directors in the United States, right? And like it or not, we live in a capitalist world. So people always have the option of, you know, shopping differently, endorsing differently. And I think it's going to be interesting and I'm curious what Kara's thoughts are, to see how and where athletes train going forward. I think one of the things that Kara had that has been really common in my experience is nobody wants this kind of attention. I mean, you're asked, you're, you're, and we talked about this a lot in the book processes. I was like, you're gonna have to go public about intimate things and relive some horrible, horrible stuff. But the th common thread is everybody wants it to stop. Kara wanted it to stop. And I think this idea of people pleasing is really interesting. And I connect with a lot of that, but it's like, which people are you pleasing? Right. And as time went on, it was clear that more people are going to be training at the Oregon project, more people. And I think that from my conversations with Kara really shifted as a motivator of like, I'm willing to sacrifice a lot because there's this bigger thing. This actually isn't about me. This is about a sport. I really care about a culture. I really care about um, I was thinking about with the Eugene Carroll news too, like she wanted it to stop, you know, when you see up close what this process looks like for folks, it's so intense and it's so hard. And we live in a world, unfortunately, that makes it really, really hard. Um, hopefully it gets better, but yeah. And it's, I think it's really inspirational actually. I think it's really, um, you know, we talk about resilience. I think it's really hopeful that there are people who are willing to go to hell and back to make things better. FOMO. FOMO. You just mentioned, I mean, the point you just made, Mary, about who are you pleasing? It's a really good one. I just want to like hit it a little bit with a, an extra emphasis because like you're <laughs> the manipulators, if you're pleasing the manipulators, and by the way, folks who've listened to the show, we've been doing these episodes on sociopathic narcissists and malignant narcissists because like they're all over the place and they're, and they're the people who do these things to us, right? And FOMO sapiens were ambitious, so we get sucked in. So that's like, a, I just know that that's a thing that we all need to watch for. But if you're pleasing them, and yet the vast majority of people 
are feeling the same way as you are, it is interesting. They may not stand up. They may not have the courage, right? Because of all the things we've been talking about, but it's a really interesting way to reframe thinking about it. And by the way, speaking of Nike, you can go get some Brooks. We had Jim Weber on the show talking about his book and I wear Brooks and they're because I have a wide foot, but they're great. (laughs) You don't have to get Nikes. Kara, I just want to end here with you, give you the last word here, which is, you know, I'm sure we have people who are listening who are going through something right now, whether it's themselves, whether it's you know somebody that they're close to, and they're asking themselves what to do. And this is not, there's no easy answers here, but you know, I'm, I wanna give you the opportunity to just share you know, what your advice would be to somebody who is listening to this right now. They've got a, in the pit of their stomach, they're like, they, they know that they're in a, a situation like this. My advice is to to really think about what it's going to do to you to keep that a secret, right? To keep that in. And hopefully you have good people in your corner. You know, I had my family and Adam, but I will just say that I got to a point where I thought, you know, I actually have the power to say something and potentially protect someone else. And even though that's going to bring a lot, and it did bring a lot of, you know, not good times my way. I felt like if I didn't say something, I was actually enabling the behavior and I was actually allowing it to continue instead of doing something to change it for the next generation or the next woman or whoever. And so I really thought about that, that I was, it, I was willing to do, to sacrifice or whatever you want to call it, my peace to make sure that I wasn't a part of the problem anymore. And so the other thing I would just say too is the more people that speak up when they see injustice, the harder it is to make those accusers seem crazy or the loner, right? The more people that say, no, I experienced that too, or I've also experienced that, it makes it harder for society to say, oh, they're just jealous, they're this, they're that. Because you can't, what are you going to do when there's 20 women talking or 20 men, whatever it is, it just takes on a different feel. So I think just like really think about in your heart, what it feels like to keep that a secret and keeping it a secret is probably doing more damage to you than it is just telling it and being able to move forward. All right. The book is called The Longest Race Inside the Secret World of Abuse, Doping, and Deception on Nike's Elite Running Team. It is co-written by Kara Goucher and Mary Pallon. And you can find them both on Instagram. It's just at both of their names. Kara and Mary, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMOSapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com.